From CPR News and KRCC, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a conversation about immigration you won't hear in Congress. Our guest turns the issue on its head. If we actually took a more creative, innovative approach to migration policy in which people could get to the United States in a much more orderly and safer fashion, immigration would just become boring. Boring and good for families and the economy. This interview may require you to reassess your view of America as a city on a hill, though, and your view of whom the U.S. should let in. Because there is room for lawbreakers in the United States. And how Denver and Colorado could be innovators to help solve the current mess in the immigration system. Instead of spending money on social services, we spend money on payroll. An immigration paradigm shift. Hi, I'm Seth Kent, and I donated a van to CPR. All we needed was the title and the keys. It was really great to be able to make a larger donation like that. We're Evergreen members, but at nowhere near that level. Uh, It will take us years to match that. But it feels really great to be able to give a really significant donation to CPR, and it feels like it's put to good use, so that's good too. It is super easy to donate your vehicle at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a totally different way the U.S. could handle immigration. It's not something you'll hear talked about in Congress these days. But in a new book, a Colorado legal scholar argues it would fix the current situation, which overwhelms cities and nonprofits. And, says our guest, it would help the U.S. economy and set the country up for success in other ways. Cesar Cuauhtémoc Garcia Hernández, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Your new book is called Welcome the Wretched in Defense of the Criminal Alien. I imagine that you use that term in a very specific way. Your ideas would really turn U.S. immigration law on its head. Could you lay out the basic idea you're proposing? I think what we need to do is reimagine and rethink the way that we think of citizenship in the United States. We like to imagine ourselves as being the city on a hill, the exceptional country founded by extraordinary people. But in reality, we're just ordinary human beings. We have our fine moments. We are a community of people that rises to the occasion. And we're also a community comprised of people who mess up. I guess you are taking exception to American exceptionalism. Yeah, that's right. If we imagine ourselves as being the exceptional human beings that we have never been, um, (laughs) then, of course, we should set that as the minimum bar to making a life in the United States for folks who want to come here and do exactly that. But you're saying that that is not realistic, and so therefore our expectations on the immigrant are also not realistic. That's right. Immigration law describes migrants as aliens. And of course, if they were actually aliens, then it would make complete sense to treat them to exceptional standards. But in reality, they're just human beings. And so you think that that ought to result really in a reimagining, not just of our expectations, but of our laws around immigration, which we'll talk about. You tell a story in the book of Robert E. Lee, and say essentially that this book is all about the people 
who are as worthy as he is, Robert E. Lee, of being U.S. citizens. Help us understand this. Just to clear up any confusion, I mean that Robert E. Lee, right? The Confederate general, the man whose claim to fame is to have led the military whose objective it was to literally destroy the United States of America. And as did many leaders of the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee decided that he would disown the United States in favor of the Confederate States of America. And when the country to whom he pledged his allegiance and claim citizenship in failed to exist, ceased to exist. The Confederacy. The Confederacy. He was left stateless, essentially. And then a few months after surrendering to General Grant on that famous uh, field in Appomattox, Virginia, he sends a letter to President Andrew Johnson requesting to be readmitted into the citizenry. And he pledges allegiance to the Constitution that he has just so bloodily ignored. And about a century later, an archivist working at the State Department finds this request from Robert E. Lee in some old files. And at that point, Congress learns of this. And in the 1970s, Congress decides, we can pass a law restoring Robert E. Lee to his full U.S. citizenship. Posthumously, Posthumously. of course. But I suppose the point is that he might be today framed as the worst of the worst, as someone you would never let in. Robert E. Lee's goal is to literally try to end the United States of America. But you think there should be a place for him. There is, in fact, a place for him. Congress decided in the 1970s, we will return his U.S. citizenship. And on the House floor, a member of Congress from the state of Virginia asked the question, if Robert E. Lee is not fit for U.S. citizenship, then who is? And my, my response is, if Robert E. Lee is fit for U.S. citizenship, then there's a whole lot of people who are and who right now are actually being targeted by immigration law for failures that are true, but much less severe than literally attacking the United States of America. The recent immigration bill Congress considered is certainly evidence that the focus in U.S. politics is on enforcement these days. Uh, the prevailing priority is on ramping up detention, deportation, and ways to keep people out of the U.S. I want to talk about how we got to that point, which feels to me very hand in hand with the notion of an idealized place that keeps a lot of people out. Is the reason we're here because one party has pushed policy and discourse in that direction? Or is that co-owned by Republicans and Democrats? I certainly won't say that there's no difference when it comes to Republicans and Democrats, that there's no difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. You won't say that. I won't say that. There is, of course. And we begin with the rhetoric, Trump's abrasiveness. But when it comes to their policies, Republicans and Democrats have united forces over the last several decades to ensure immigration law treats basically any run-in with the criminal legal system as one too many. And as a result, people left and right, people across Denver and across the United States every single day are finding themselves in immigration detention and facing the prospect of deportation for failures that are much less severe than Robert E. Lee and much less severe than what we've seen in the past. I mean, in the book, you point to the criminalization of immigration under Bill Clinton, Democrat. Here's what he said. In the 1995 State of the Union address, I think his comments show 
how Democrats have often framed immigrants and immigration as a threat and doubled down on policing as the solution. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more, by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. And so you hear there former President Clinton in 1995 using that phrase, criminal alien. You've written this book, Welcome the Wretched, in defense of the criminal alien. And you say there should be room for lawbreakers. That's correct, because there is room for lawbreakers in the United States, whether we're talking about the folks who are in the highest elected offices in the country or whether we're talking about people in our own families. I've been on college campuses most of my adult life, and it's no secret that there's plenty of crime happening in college dorms and every university and college campus in this country. And and as somebody who is um, intimately familiar with the reality of sexual violence in universities across the United States, it strikes me as ironic that we hear politicians point at migrants for committing acts that every single weekend are happening in the more privileged spaces of university dorm rooms. And I've never once walked around any college in this country and seen or heard of a person standing on a college quad and saying, there goes a criminal undergraduate. And immigration law currently ties migrants to their worst moments. And it's that double standard that I think is problematic. And it wasn't really until the 1980s and the 1990s um, when Congress really started to change the laws. And before then, people messed up just like they do today, only they could move on. They can move on into citizenship and their children can move on into citizenship as well. I mean, that's fascinating because it's hard to imagine a time like that, given what we see today. Is that change based in racism, xenophobia, othering? Uh, This is a change that really begins in the 1980s when the Reagan administration is trying to latch on to a a political strategy that's going to bring white people into the Republican Party fold. And it's tied up very much in what we now refer to as the war on drugs. It's not just the same political moment. It's exactly the same pieces of legislation that become the foundation of the war on drugs that also ratchet up the consequences of migrants getting involved with the criminal legal system. But Cesar, Professor, with immigration, we get to be the gatekeepers, right? Why wouldn't you choose to use the gate to let in 
the nuclear scientists with shining resumes versus someone who has homicidal tendencies. I have no problem with letting in the nuclear scientists. And in fact, toward the end of World War II, when the United States was ramping up the research and the development of the atomic bomb as part of the Manhattan Project, where did we look for that scientific genius? Nazi Germany. We took in, we recruited the very same people who had been helping build up Hitler's military prowess, and we brought them to the United States to help lead some of the foundational uh, scientific research that led to the development of the atomic bomb. So we have, this is not a hypothetical question you're asking, we have a history of recruiting the best and the brightest, even though they are also flawed humans. Because the PhDs, the nuclear scientists, the neurosurgeons, the brilliant novelists, they also mess up. Uh-huh. And we should accept them into the fold because of that. They are also not cities on a hill. They are also <laughs> not cities on, on the hill. Yes. These days, some Republican leaders, including the party's leading candidate for president, have made new immigrants into a punching bag. Uh, This seems to build to some extent on what you laid out from the Reagan years. There's this racist theory that's become somewhat mainstream among Republicans about white replacement. Uh, That does strike me as a far cry from, say, the second Bush administration. But do you see signs that fear increasingly drives the conversation around new immigrants? Fear is the central operating principle of conversations about immigration policy. This is why the bill that was released recently in the United States Senate is so focused on policing. It would dump more money into hiring more Border Patrol agents, hiring more ICE officers, paying for more immigration prison beds. And it would just continue to boost the amount of funding that the law, immigration law enforcement agencies have, even though we are already financing those agencies like never before. And so if the solution to controlling migration was to be found in spending more money on more law enforcement officers and more technology, then we would have paid for the solution a long time ago, and we haven't. And so long as we continue to imagine migrants as posing some kind of existential threat to the United States, then we're just going to be running through the same series of policy tactics that have given us exactly the situation that we have right now. Okay, talk to the person listening to this conversation who says, oh, this, this is an open borders guy. This is a guy who just wants to dissolve the borders and let anyone come. Yeah, I don't I think we can regulate the border. I think what we have right now is a regime in which there's an incentive to avoid dealing with federal government officials. What I want is for there to be more lawful ways into the United States so that people are incentivized to approach federal government officials present themselves, identify themselves, tell the federal government where they're going, what their plans are, and then be allowed into the United States to make that life that I guarantee you, whether you want open borders or closed borders, they will get here anyway. Oh, it's fascinating to think of immigrants and immigration officials in the world that you paint as collaborative Almost 
as opposed to confrontational. That, that's what we have already for most of us. Every single year, there are millions upon millions of people who navigate the lawful paths into the United States, right? And they are collaborating with federal immigration officials. And so long as there are legitimately, genuinely pathways into the United States, people will follow those procedures. I'm glad you mentioned more lawful avenues. Just recently, I interviewed Michael Bennett, Democrat and Colorado's senior U.S. senator. Bennett wants more work permits and more people allowed to enter legally. But, Professor, he makes a clear distinction between people coming legally and those coming illegally. It is important for us to have a system, as I said, of lawful immigration so that people aren't coming here illegally, they're coming here legally, and when they come here, that they have the ability to work. And you know, this echoes what we heard at a recent forum about migrants, that it's a slap in the face to those who came legally, who have followed the proper protocol. You know, indeed, most of the people we've spoken with who are arriving in Colorado, they're trying to do it legally. I mean, they've walked through the jungle, checked in with authorities at the border, gotten a court date. Do you make a distinction between those trying to come legally and those who aren't? I also want people to be able to navigate legal pathways into the United States, largely because that is a whole lot safer for those individuals than doing what they are doing now walking through the jungle, walking across the, the desert into Arizona, or wading across the Rio Grande River into my native South Texas. But the reality is right now, there are no options, lawful options available for a large number of people. And the reality is, if they get to the United States, they will find work. We are an economy dependent on their labor, many of those individuals will also find their loved ones here. They have family here, they have friends here, they have neighbors here. Where is this perfect world where there are more avenues? If you're looking for a perfect world, then you're looking for something that doesn't exist yeah. because laws and policies are created by humans and we're going to get it wrong no matter how much we're trying to get it right. How can we get it more right? Because we need more people in the United States. We know that we have labor needs in communities around the United States. We can look at Denver. We can look at the rural communities, the resort towns in, in the state of Colorado, and we can make exactly the same assessment of just about every state and large metropolitan area in this country. And so long as individuals get here, they will almost certainly find work. So what we then have to, to demand of our elected officials is to choose. Are we going to make it possible for people to navigate legal pathways in which they identify themselves, in which they present themselves, in which they safely travel to the United States on buses and airplanes? Or are we going to push people to walking across the desert in the middle of the night and pushing people to taking more dangerous routes that are more expensive. And that's how we push people into the hands of the cartels. If we end up only focusing on adding more policing to the U.S.-Mexican border, the only thing that we're going to accomplish is to make the process of getting into the United States more expensive and more dangerous. Uh, we're going to boost the business of unscrupulous smugglers and we are going to continue to see people coming to the United States. Okay. 
I'm hearing you say that there needs to be a paradigm shift in the United States because you say they will find work. Let's go back to Bill Clinton's comments in 95. He mentions jobs. He mentions public services. I'm sure if he gave that speech today, it might include natural resource concerns like, you know, the finite availability of water. These are things that spark some people in the U.S. to fear the arrival of people from other countries. And yet the U.N. says there are a record number of displaced people around the world. I think, too, of the housing crunch in Metro Denver. You are asking the United States to view the immigrant not as an interloper, not as someone who is taking something away, but who's adding. Is that always true? I moved to Denver about 10 years ago, and when I did, I had no claim to this city. I didn't know anyone. I was coming here for work. There was opportunity to be had, and I wanted to take advantage of that. I moved into part of the city, the north side of Denver, that is gentrification central. And I would be lying if I didn't say that I've been part of the problem there. My, My neighborhood has seen family after family get pushed out, get displaced into I don't know where as a result of the increasing costs. The problem of housing in this city predates the last few months when thousands of Venezuelans came to the United States. The relationship between immigrants and housing, the only relationship, is those are the people who are building the housing that is in short supply. And so if we have concerns about the cost of living in this city, well, those are concerns that um, have very little to do with the folks who have arrived in the last six months or 12 months, because I've been listening to these complaints since the moment I arrived here a decade ago. Not to mention the fact that just as we're speaking, uh, the news around inflation is not as rosy as we had hoped. It remains difficult. That is also a function of the supply chain, of the fact that we have many jobs that are open. Will you speak to the other economic benefits you think the U.S. would reap if that paradigm shift that we've described occurred? Every new worker is also a new consumer. The economy of Colorado or the United States is not a fixed pie that doesn't get any bigger. Instead, we know that at times economic activity contracts, at other times economic activity expands, and a big part of that assessment is how many people do you have participating in the economic world. So the more people that we have working, the more people that we have consuming, are there going to be hiccups? Of course there are going to be hiccups. That's always true in any kind of economic system. But the reality is the same people who are uh, helping to build our housing, to pick our crops, to educating our future workers because they're also operating as professors and taking care of our sick because they're also out working as nurses and doctors. These are individuals who are contributing to the economic vitality of every community across this country. And we get to choose whether we want to maintain the economic robustness of the United States or do we want to contract? 
Those are values questions. Perhaps people want a smaller economy. Perhaps people don't want the United States to have the economic footprint that it currently has and has enjoyed over the last several generations on the global stage. And we are not making sufficient babies in this country. <laughs> we are getting older. I'm glad that you invoke the birth rate because that's such an important part of that picture. Um, you know, the chair of the Federal Reserve was asked about this recently. He said, over time, the U.S. economy has benefited from immigration. And in the last year, a big part of the story of the labor market coming back into better balance is immigration returning to levels that are more typical of the pre-pandemic era. Again, comments from the Fed chair. These days, some Republican leaders, including the party's leading candidate for president, have made new immigrants into a punching bag. Uh, this seems to build to some extent on what you laid out from the Reagan years. There's this racist theory that's become somewhat mainstream among Republicans about white replacement. Uh, that does strike me as a far cry from, say, the second Bush administration. But do you see signs that fear increasingly drives the conversation around new immigrants? Fear is the central operating principle of conversations about immigration policy. This is why the bill that was released recently in the United States Senate is so focused on policing. It would dump more money into hiring more Border Patrol agents, hiring more ICE officers, paying for more immigration prison beds. And it would just continue to boost the amount of funding that the law, immigration law enforcement agencies have, even though we are already financing those agencies like never before. And so if the solution to controlling migration was to be found in spending more money on more law enforcement officers and more technology, then we would have paid for the solution a long time ago, and we haven't. And so long as we continue to imagine migrants as posing some kind of existential threat to the United States, then we're just going to be running through the same series of policy tactics that have given us exactly the situation that we have right now. Okay, talk to the person listening to this conversation who says, oh, this, this is an open borders guy. This is a guy who just wants to dissolve the borders and let anyone come. Yeah, I don't I think we can regulate the border. I think what we have right now is a regime in which there's an incentive to avoid dealing with federal government officials. What I want is for there to be more lawful ways into the United States so that people are incentivized to approach federal government officials present themselves, identify themselves, tell the federal government where they're going, what their plans are, and then be allowed into the United States to make that life that I guarantee you, whether you want open borders or closed borders, they will get here anyway. Oh, it's fascinating to think of immigrants and immigration officials in the world that you paint as collaborative almost, as opposed to confrontational. That, that's what we have already for most of us. Every single year, there are millions upon millions of people who navigate the lawful paths into the United States, right? And they are collaborating with federal immigration officials. And so long as there are legitimately, genuinely pathways into the United States, people will follow those procedures. 
I'm glad you mentioned more lawful avenues. Just recently, I interviewed Michael Bennett, Democrat and Colorado senior U.S. senator. Bennett wants more work permits and more people allowed to enter legally. But, Professor, he makes a clear distinction between people coming legally and those coming illegally. It is important for us to have a system, as I said, of lawful immigration so that people aren't coming here illegally. They're coming here legally. And when they come here, that they have the ability to work. And, you know, this echoes what we heard at a recent forum about migrants, that it's a slap in the face to those who came legally, who have followed the proper protocol. You know, indeed, most of the people we've spoken with who are arriving in Colorado, they're trying to do it legally. I mean, they've walked through the jungle, checked in with authorities at the border, gotten a court date. Do you make a distinction between those trying to come legally and those who aren't? I also want people to be able to navigate legal pathways into the United States, largely because that is a whole lot safer for those individuals than doing what they are doing now, walking through the jungle, walking across the the desert into Arizona, or wading across the Rio Grande River into my native South Texas. But the reality is right now, There are no options, lawful options available for a large number of people. And the reality is, if they get to the United States, they will find work. We are an economy dependent on their labor. Many of those individuals will also find their loved ones here. They have family here. They have friends here. They have neighbors here. Where is this perfect world where there are more avenues? If you're looking for a perfect world, then you're looking for something that doesn't exist because laws and policies are created by humans. And we're going to get it wrong no matter how much we're trying to get it right. How can we get it more right? Because we need more people in the United States. We know that we have labor needs in communities around the United States. We can look at Denver. We can look at the rural communities, the resort towns in, in the state of Colorado, and we can make exactly the same assessment of just about every state and, and large metropolitan area in this country. And so long as individuals get here, they will almost certainly find work. So what we then have to, to demand of our elected officials is to choose. Are we going to make it possible for people to navigate legal pathways in which they identify themselves, in which they present themselves, in which they safely travel to the United States on buses and airplanes? Or are we going to push people to walking across the desert in the middle of the night and pushing people to taking more dangerous routes that are more expensive. And that's how we push people into the hands of the cartels. If we end up only focusing on adding more policing to the U.S.-Mexican border, the only thing that we're going to accomplish is to make the process of getting into the United States more expensive and more dangerous. Uh, We're going to boost the business of unscrupulous smugglers And we are going to continue to see people coming to the United States. Okay. I'm hearing you say that there needs to be a paradigm shift in the United States because you say they will find work. Let's go back to Bill Clinton's comments in 95. He mentions jobs. He mentions public services. I'm sure if he gave that speech today, It might include natural resource concerns like, you know, the finite availability of water. 
These are things that spark some people in the U.S. to fear the arrival of people from other countries. And yet the U.N. says there are a record number of displaced people around the world. I think, too, of the housing crunch in Metro Denver. You are asking the United States to view the immigrant not as an interloper, not as someone who is taking something away, but who's adding. Is that always true? I moved to Denver about 10 years ago, and when I did, I had no claim to this city. I didn't know anyone. I was coming here for work. There was opportunity to be had, and I wanted to take advantage of that. I moved into part of the city, the north side of Denver, that is gentrification central. Right? And I would be lying if I didn't say that I've been part of the problem there. Right? My, my neighborhood has seen family after family get pushed out, get displaced into I don't know where as a result of the increasing costs. The problem of housing in this city predates the last few months when thousands of Venezuelans came to the United States. The relationship between immigrants and housing, the only relationship, is those are the people who are building the housing that is in short supply. And so if we have concerns about the cost of living in this city, well, those are concerns that um, have very little to do with the folks who have arrived in the last six months or 12 months, because I've been listening to these complaints since the moment I arrived here a decade ago. Not to mention the fact that just as we're speaking, uh, the news around inflation is not as rosy as we had hoped. It remains difficult. That is also a function of the supply chain, of the fact that we have many jobs that are open. Will you speak to the other economic benefits you think the U.S. would reap if that paradigm shift that we've described occurred? Every new worker is also a new consumer. The economy of Colorado or the United States is not a fixed pie that doesn't get any bigger. Instead, we know that at times economic activity contracts, at other times economic activity expands, and a big part of that assessment is how many people do you have participating in the economic world. So the more people that we have working, the more people that we have consuming, are there going to be hiccups? Of course there are going to be hiccups. That's always true in any kind of economic system. But the reality is the same people who are uh, helping to build our housing, to pick our crops, to educating our future workers because they're also operating as professors and taking care of our sick because they're also all working as nurses and doctors. These are individuals who are contributing to the economic vitality of every community across this country. And we get to choose whether we want to maintain the economic robustness of the United States or do we want to contract? Those are values questions. Perhaps people want a smaller economy. Perhaps people don't want the United States to have the economic footprint that it currently has and has enjoyed over the last several generations on the global stage. And we are not making sufficient babies in this country. <laughs> we are getting older. I'm glad that you invoke the birth rate because that's such an important part of that picture. Um, you know, the chair of the Federal Reserve was asked about this recently. He said, over time, the U.S. economy has benefited from immigration. And in the last year, a big part of the story of the labor market coming back into better balance is immigration returning to levels that are more typical 
of the pre-pandemic era. Again, comments from the Fed chair. This conversation we're having is certainly not just theoretical. There are thousands of people now in Metro Denver and other parts of Colorado who've come across the border and want to find work here. Some have walked thousands of miles through treacherous conditions and they want to reestablish their lives. But their legal options are limited. We went to a clinic in Denver recently where new immigrants are seeking advice. This takes place in a Catholic church building, Centro San Juan Diego. They've put on a clinic with the Colorado Lawyers Committee for almost 20 years, and it offers pro bono advice on everything from employment to rent to car accidents. But Angela Reyes, who was checking people in, said lately they get almost entirely immigration questions. Immigration is up through the roof, and they're seeking uh, work permits and asylum seekers as well. Um, A lot of people have their court dates already set, so they need kind of like, what do I do now? What do I need to have ready? What do I need to do? Like all the attorneys and interpreters, Reyes was there volunteering. She came to the U.S. as a child from Colombia. I am an immigrant. I can't be non-immigrant. And I I admire their tenacity. I admire their their courage to try and do this, not speaking a lick of the language, humming and sleeping on the streets because they don't have anywhere to go. It takes a special kind of person to try and do that. So you you have to help them. Except for Native Americans, we're all immigrants. There are more than 100 people here. Lately, the clinic hasn't had enough attorneys to serve the folks winding their way around the block to get in. Rocio Arellano came for advice on her asylum case. She's from Mexico and got to the U.S. last October and says she has followed the legal avenues available. She's one of the thousands of people coming to Colorado for her family to go to school and to work and to be safe. And there is lots of misinformation indicating to people that it'll be relatively easy to get asylum. But immigration attorney Pascal Schunk says the chances of winning asylum cases are generally not good. It's very hard to win uh, because you have to prove if you go home, the government's going to kill you, basically. And uh, it's not some gang or cartel or anything that's going to go after you. It has to be the government. Uh, And that's very hard to prove. People who arrived in the U.S. at a certain time from certain countries can apply for something called TPS, Temporary Protected Status. The other options, like asylum, take a long time to adjudicate. And just in general, immigration is so backlogged, it's going to take years. People that file on their own, they're waiting sometimes six to seven years for their interview. The picture from Centro San Juan Diego, which hosts legal clinics in Denver. And so, Cesar, do you think a lot of the people who have come over the past year plus will end up living as undocumented folks in the U.S., joining the 11 million people already in that situation? I'm certain that lots of the people who have arrived recently will find that there are no legal options for them to reside in the United States lawfully. And so there is this uh, limbo that the immigration system has created. That's right. There's uh, no shortage of people who want to come to the United States and will get to the United States. Sometimes they navigate legal processes that exist at the early stage of the process. But at the end of the day, you know, asylum law is born of 
World War II and the horror of horrors that is the Holocaust. And as a result, it's a very narrow promise of protection, one that doesn't aim to keep everyone from being killed or maimed or murdered or raped, but in fact, it only aims to protect people from suffering persecution for one of five very specific reasons. And even for folks who come to the United States and apply for asylum, they cannot work for a long time after applying. They have to wait a minimum of 150 days after applying for asylum before they can even apply for work authorization. And how are people supposed to feed themselves and clothe themselves and put a roof over their head during six months or longer before the government decides whether they're going to be allowed to work in the United States. In a city like Denver, with the cost of living as high as it is, that's, it's impossible for me to imagine doing that without money, without in the income for six months. And I can only begin to imagine how difficult that would be if I had just walked here with all of my belongings on my back. And then it creates a bit of a vicious cycle, doesn't it? Because it feeds the fear. These folks are coming. They're on our streets. They're lurking. They're, you, you, you know, it, it kind of buttresses the mongering. And to an extent, it's of course true that these are people who are on our streets. They're on our street corners. They're begging for money. They're begging for work. Right? They're offering to clean my windshield on the way to the studio uh, for whatever amount of cash I'm willing to hand over. And so this is why I want to see cities like Denver, states like Colorado, take a creative and innovative approach to hiring migrants. Because the federal law that says people who do not have the government's permission to work cannot be hired is quite clear that it applies to private employers and to federal government agencies. But it is absolutely silent about whether it applies to state or local governments. We've got to explore that. What role do you think that municipalities could play? What jobs do you imagine? And how might it be transformational? Because what we hear over and over again when we ask local officials is, to some extent, our hands are tied. This is a federal issue, you know. The city of, of Denver and any major metropolitan area in this country hires people to do all kinds of things from you know, making important policy decisions at the highest level of the mayor's office to fixing up our streets and picking up the trash. And there's all kinds of jobs in between. And what I'm suggesting is that cities like Denver take a close look at that federal law signed in, in 1986 by President Reagan and note the fact that it does not say that it applies to states or to cities. It does not say that cities cannot hire people unless they have the federal government's permission. And if it does not say that, then the possibility is there under the existing laws that are in place right now for Denver to go out and open up the ranks of its employees to people who are in the, in the country, whether or not they have the federal government's permission to work. Hmm. I'm thinking right now about how Denver is contracting, it says, because of the recent arrivals, that it's cutting recreation center hours and motor vehicle hours and the planting of flowers in beds. You're saying that this doesn't have to be about contraction. This could be about expansion. Uh, let me commend the city for 
taking such a, a humanitarian approach. But so far, the city has been relying on charity. Charity provided by private people, but also governmental charity. And there's only so far that charity can go. What I'm suggesting is that instead of spending money on social services, we spend money on payroll. Bring people onto the city's payroll to do all the jobs that the city desperately needs to be done in neighborhoods around the city so that those people then become the next layer of consumers in Denver and across the metropolitan area to boost the economy rather than take some money out of it. Do you want to bend Mike Johnston's ear on this, the mayor's ear? I would love to get the mayor's ear on this. I think the mayor has done a lot um, on a personal level to tackle um, what is a difficult problem for the city, but I don't think the mayor has done everything that is in the city's toolbox. To wrap up, you tell several personal stories in your book, stories of people who have suffered because of the immigration system that criminalizes those who want to come here. Uh, you argue, I think, that not only are people suffering, but needlessly so. Could you share one of the stories that drives this home for you? Yeah, look, I, I write about my dear friend, Patty who is a Brooklyn social worker who has devoted her career to helping high school students in a New York City public school, but who decades before I met her was just a little girl who walked to the dusty hills east of Tijuana, waited for the cover of darkness, and with her hands wrapped inside her mother's, started walking north. And they walked across the international boundary. And as they did, they, they violated federal immigration law. And that night, they actually got picked up by the Border Patrol agents and they got deported. And a few days later, they tried again. And eventually, they made their way to the Central Valley of California, where Patty grew up. And the, the life that her mother hoped for began to become real. And eventually both Patty and her mom became U.S. citizens. And eventually Patty got one Ivy League degree. That's where I met her at Brown University. And then she got another Ivy League degree. She went on to Columbia and became a, a social worker and devoted her life to helping the next generation of young people figure out how to navigate this crazy world that we all live in. But none of that can undo the fact that decades earlier, Patty and her mom violated federal immigration law. And Patty would have been helped by her age, but not so much her, her mom, who not only committed the federal crime of illegal entry into the United States, that's punishable by up to six months imprisonment. But after getting deported, she came back, and that's illegal reentry, which is a felony punishable by up to two years of imprisonment. But also, these days, we might hear politicians say, well, her mom was actually smuggling somebody into the United States, smuggling Patty into the United States. And so there's a whole host of immigration law violations that are the entire reason why Patty was able to make a life in, in this country and brought her into my life, more importantly, brought her into the lives of these young people in New York City who she's been working with, helping for almost 20 years now. None of it would have been possible her, her mom not decided that she was going to do whatever it took to take advantage of the opportunities that exist in the United States. And I'm glad she did. 
underscoring the subtitle of your book, In Defense of the Criminal Alien. Exactly. Patty and her mom became criminal aliens that night, and I'm grateful that they did. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been my pleasure. Law professor Cesar Cuauhtémoc Garcia Hernandez. He lives in Denver and teaches at the Ohio State University. His latest book is Welcome the Wretched in Defense of the Criminal Alien. Rachel Estabrook produced today's show, engineered by Shane Rumsey. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC.